I need to take you back a little bit in time. We're going to go back to 1975. I think I've done my math correctly. Just to talk about a little something related to my own life. It was the spring semester of one of my college years. I was at the University of Houston. And that semester, I I almost decided to change from majoring in pharmacology, which was what I was pursuing, to pursuing something else. And there were three primary reasons for my thinking that way that semester. First of all, I was going through some personal struggles, some spiritual struggles. There was confusion and doubt in my own heart and about my true spiritual state, and that was causing me to think unclearly in more than one area of my life. Second, I was distracted by Pam that semester. (laughs) I had met her the previous semester, and I had begun pursuing her. The problem was she kept running the other direction for several weeks, and that made me depressed. So the result of even of all of that was that I was losing my, my motivation to keep studying a career in pharmacy, keep pursuing that, motivation to sit in lectures of medicinal chemistry and other things related to that and calculus and so forth. You got to be motivated, you know. But there was a third reason I began to question whether I was pursuing the right career. During that semester, we were required, even pursuing pharmacology, we were required to take a course, just one course, in accounting. And I loved it. In fact, I began to be obsessed with ledgers and budgets and so forth. So much so that I began to think about changing my course of study to that. I didn't, and eventually I did finish my degree in pharmacy, and eventually Pam stopped running, and we married. But my interest in accounting never went away. So once we married, I began keeping very detailed records of our finances. At that time, it was in hard copy you know, ledger books. Through the years, I eventually switched to using a computer and some software for that. Still today, fast forward, I try to keep very good records. I enjoy it, though I'm a a little less obsessive about it today, I think. You can ask Pam whether that's true or not. But in that accounting course, we learned several things, just one semester. But one of the things I learned about was something called a balance sheet. And so just in general terms, a balance sheet is a list of assets and a list of liabilities. In other words, it's a snapshot of what a person or a business owns and what they owe. And the difference between those two is a person's or a business's net worth. If the total assets outweigh liabilities then you have a positive net worth. If the liabilities outweigh the assets, you have a negative net worth and are possibly headed toward 
some serious financial situations, maybe even bankruptcy. Believe me, I'm no expert on this. I think my wife might even say that I know enough to be really dangerous. And certainly many of you, I, I know, understand these issues a whole lot better than I do. But evidently, the Apostle Paul had some level of understanding of something like that, something like the concept of a balance sheet, because in Philippians chapter 3, he uses a similar idea to illustrate the futility of trying to earn acceptance by God, salvation, through good works or personal merit. So join me in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. If the Lord wills, next Sunday we begin our study finally of 1 Thessalonians. But today, Philippians 3, verses 4 to 7. So just a brief word about the three verses before that. That helps set the stage for our study, verses 1 to 3. The Apostle Paul had heard that the church in Philippi might be harassed by false teachers. So he became deeply disturbed. He loved them. These false teachers were Jews called Judaizers. In other words, they confessed belief in Jesus on one hand, but they still insisted that to attain salvation, at least in the fullest sense, it was necessary that everyone, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles as well, it was necessary to keep the law of Moses in addition to faith in Christ. And they put special emphasis on the rite of circumcision, which means they were distorting the gospel. So Paul warned the Philippian Christians about these Judaizers who were putting confidence in, trust in their external acts or their human effort, their own goodness, something in order to be accepted by God. And he ends the warning in verse 3 by saying that true believers aren't like that. True believers, a true Christian is someone, he says at the end of verse 3, who puts no confidence in the flesh. And that term flesh here, it's just being used in its broadest terms. It's anything apart from Christ, trusting in Christ alone, anything on which someone bases his or her hope for salvation, including good works, self-efforts at morality, whatever it might be. So after setting the stage with those thoughts, then in verses 4 to 7, Paul begins to give some detail about his own past, and what he says is very similar in form to a balance sheet. Let me read verses 4 to 7 for us. I'll read a little bit of verse 3 again, actually. True believers are those who worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Why? Well, circumcised the eighth day, that's me, he says. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Look at verse 4 again. 
Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh. I, far more, he says. Paul is saying that if good works could save someone, if good intentions could save one, someone, then he would definitely be entitled to acceptance by God. He would be entitled to God's favor. Of all people, Paul had what it took to put confidence in the flesh. So he goes on then in the next verses to give sort of a balance sheet, a balance sheet of his life, a list of assets, a list of liabilities that summarize what he was trusting in for salvation. So we're going to evaluate Paul's spiritual balance sheet here this morning from two different perspectives. We're going to look at it first from the perspective of a human accountant, and then the same balance sheet from the perspective of a heavenly accountant. So first of all, the perspective, number one, the perspective of a human accountant. From that perspective, Paul gives what he, at one time in his life, considered to be the assets that would gain him a a positive net worth, as it were, or spiritually speaking, eternal life. What are the assets? Well, there's seven of them that he lists here. And you can put them in two broad categories if you want. I'm going to do that. There's four out of these seven that we can lump together. We can call them hereditary advantages, the advantages that Paul had just because of the family he was born into and his ethnicity and so forth, hereditary advantages. And then the other three we could group together and call personal attainments. So here's that first category, hereditary advantages, four of them. Here's one, we'll call it his covenantal asset, his covenantal asset. He marks down in verse 5 that he was circumcised the eighth day. Now, circumcision on the eighth day of life was instituted in Genesis 17 after the covenant with Abraham. So that would have meant that Abraham's son, Isaac, he was circumcised on the eighth day. If you fast forward all the way to Luke chapter 2, Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. So Paul lists that one first, I I really think because that's the one it seems that the Judaizers were contending for most of all. So he says here, well, in respect to that, I'm an eighth-dayer, you know. I, I sort of think maybe they had buttons they wore, bumper stickers. It indicated he was a true-blooded Jew from the beginning, from the cradle. So if circumcision is an asset, he's got that one. He excelled there. Second one in this category, a national asset. Verse 4 says, of the nation, or verse 5 rather, of the nation of Israel. That word nation means something like our term stock. In other words, Paul is saying that he was from pure stock. Uh, His parents didn't belong to mixed stock. He was a direct descendant in the line coming from Abraham. But you can't stop just there. Ishmael could say that, you know. He was from the line of Abraham and Isaac. You couldn't even stop there. There was a group of people called the, the Edomites. They could claim that. No, he was from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is the one, you know, that had that wrestling match with God. And after he wrestled with God, it was God himself in Genesis 32 that gave 
Jacob a new and very significant name. What name? Israel. So Paul is saying, that's the line I'm in. This very Israel, I've descended from that line. I belong to God's chosen nation. Third in this grouping, you could call it his tribal asset. Verse 5 again, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, there were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel, and you could argue that none of the 12 were more Jewish, none were more Israelitish than the tribe of Benjamin. The name means son of my right hand. Benjamin was the only son of Jacob born in the promised land. And he shared a distinction with Joseph. Like Joseph, Benjamin was born of Jacob's most beloved wife, Rachel. Plus, when the Davidic monarchy was disrupted after Solomon's death, you'll remember 10 of the tribes revolted under Jeroboam, formed the northern kingdom, 10 tribes, the northern kingdom, two tribes in the south stayed loyal to the house of David. One of those was Benjamin. So he was retained part of that new southern kingdom. In fact, it's within the borders of Benjamin that you find the city of Jerusalem and therefore the temple. So being a Benjamite meant that Paul was surely a most authentic Israelite. One more asset in this grouping called hereditary advantages. We'll just call it his family asset. He says in verse 5 that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, Hebrews in this sense are referring to Jews who, even though they normally in life every day spoke Aramaic to one another, when they attended synagogues, they attended the synagogues where the services were in Hebrew. That was distinct then from the Hellenist, those Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenistic Jews who would go to synagogues where Greek was spoken, not Paul's family. They were conservative. This, is an, this expression is an idiom, therefore, that is stressing the significance of his, of his family lineage. He was a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents, sort of a way of saying the purest of the pure. His family would avoid assimilation into the culture that was around them, and for them it was the environment of the city of Tarsus. They, they avoided worldliness. They were conservative family. His family strictly observed the Jewish way of life. They, they maintained their, their links with their, their home country, so to speak, and the traditions. So again, his point is that he was a Hebrew if there ever was a Hebrew. All of those hereditary advantages Paul put confidence in. He trusted in that they meant something in his relationship to God. They gave him assurance But then there's three more assets. I'm grouping them together and calling them personal attainments. Again, we're looking at all this from the perspective of a human accountant. Personal attainments, three of them. His ceremonial asset would be listed in this column, verse 5, as to the law of Pharisee. Now, we hear the word Pharisee and we think, well, weren't they really bad? Would you really want to claim that? Didn't Jesus have have some very strong and condemning and stinging words to the Pharisees? Yes. But not all Pharisees were equally bad. If you go back to the origin of Phariseeism, it was not nearly as bad as what it turned into later. Originally, the Pharisees, which means 
The word means separated ones. They were the ones that were very concerned about the worldliness around them. They did not want to imbibe all of that. They withdrew themselves from everything that might be associated with ethical or ceremonial impurities. In the beginning, they had a high regard for the law of God. So in Paul's case, he was completely that way. He was dedicated to the law. He was known for his discipline in studying the law of God, the, the, the discipline of Hebrew discipleship. In fact, later on, here's what Paul said that he prided himself on when he, before he became a Christian, you know. In Galatians 1 verse 14, for example, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond the rest of my countrymen. I was at the top of the class, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Acts 26 verse 5, Paul says this, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. One more, Acts 23 verse 6, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. But there were some problems with Phariseeism. Over time, the Pharisees began to misinterpret God's law. Worse, they even began to add to God's law, their own traditions, their own laws. And the point came where what they added was just as important as Scripture. And in some instances, even more important. But their ultimate failure was that they began to think that by means of strict obedience to the law, with their additions and with their traditions, which was a lot, that they could bring about, prompt the coming of the Messiah, their leader, and that they could certainly individually earn for themselves entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And of course, their attempts to perfectly live all that out and to achieve all of that was were impossible attempts, and therefore they were known as hypocrites. Some were worse hypocrites than others, but they were all hypocrites at some level, also self-righteous. They tended to look down on others who weren't as, as in the same grouping as they were. You know, the rest, the mere riffraff. I mean, more than likely, Paul was one of the better Pharisees, but he was still deluded nonetheless. That's his ceremonial asset. Here's another one under this category of personal attainment, emotional asset. He says in verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That word zeal can be used in a bad sense. It means uh, jealousy, envy. But it also can be used in a good sense, the idea of passion, enthusiasm. And that's the way it's being used here in the good sense. Paul is saying that when it came to grading zeal, and emotion, passion. Again, he's at the top of the class. He's not, he wasn't just a pew sitter. The practice of his religion was not just here and there, and it wasn't cold. It wasn't half-hearted to him. Paul was emotionally involved in it. He was zealous. He was motivated. We'd say he was on fire. In fact, so on fire and so motivated, motivated, that his zeal for the law, though he misinterpreted it, resulted in him hating Christians and the way of Christ and this one that they were following called Christ. And so he persecuted them, something that haunted him for years, really, later. Listen to what he says in Acts 22, verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death, the Christian way, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. That's a lot of zeal. 
spend your life doing that. Galatians 1, 13 and 14. You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I mean, just take the morality out of it, you know, the rightness or wrongness out of it. If you just want a great zeal, that's a lot of passion. One more in the category of personal attainments, a moral asset. Verse 6, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. So strict had Paul been in his outward observance of the Old Testament law and the traditions that he had developed a lifestyle of being morally blameless. It doesn't literally mean that he was claiming perfection. But when it came to his outward conduct, it was irreproachable, at least according to human judgment. So what a list. One by one here, Paul carefully counted the separate items of merit, these assets, confident that when the heavenly, the final audit occurs on the final day, he's fine, he's okay. All these advantages, all these attainments had been for Paul pluses. He put his trust in them. He had it all. He did it all. He believed that these assets were impressive assets and they were gains on the divine level is what he thought. That's assets. What about his liabilities? Well, he doesn't list any. At least nothing that mattered, not from a work standpoint. Again, if you've twisted his arm, I'm sure he'd admit to some mistakes he makes here and there, some inadequacies. But compared to others, he's so much better. So whatever liabilities did exist, here's how he's thinking and why he didn't list them. It just didn't matter, his liabilities. His perspective was that the assets more than compensated for them. And that is the essence of a legalistic or works orientation. It's the idea of a scale. At the bottom line, in Paul's estimation of himself, he had a positive net worth. Or in more theological terms, he had God's favor. He had salvation. But something happened one day. It was a surprise auditing. The divine accountant, Jesus, crashed into Paul's life when he was on the road to Damascus, going to persecute Christians there, imprison Christians there. Jesus audited Paul's books. So let's look at this balance sheet. From a different perspective, number two, the perspective of a heavenly accountant. The Lord at his appointed time in Paul's life opened the books, as it were, and God basically showed Paul that day on the road to Damascus what a lousy accountant he was. The reality was Paul was spiritually bankrupt. All the assets were not only not helping him, all the assets were in the wrong column. They were actually liabilities. And the one and only asset able to offset them was missing. He didn't have Christ. So here's the point. Heavenly accounting is much different than human accounting in the spiritual realm. Scripture's clear that even though a person might look at external things and 
be judged by external standards. That's not the way God does it. God looks on the heart. We we're mindful of those famous words he said to the prophet in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Yes, man looks on the outside. Man looks at other kinds of things, but God sees the heart. The inner man, the seat of thinking, the seat of willing, the deepest part of a person. This is where the true problem lies. That goes all the way through the Bible, all the way back before the flood. In Genesis chapter 6, as God looked about upon the world, obviously he was aware of all the, the wickedness, I mean, wicked acts and perversion going on. But at the end of the day, what was the real problem? Genesis 6, 5, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All the external wickedness came out of the heart. That's why we're warned in Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We are who we are because of what we think and desire and the motivations that are there in the inner man, the heart. We act upon those. So even though a person might be a model of behavior, God sees the heart, and beyond that, He sees every little nuance of sin in the heart. Listen to the words of Moses. This is Psalm 90, verse 8, sobering words. Moses writes in Psalm 90, verse 8, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Therefore, just think about God's balance sheet. What's in the liability column is everything we're wrongly trusting in, even all the secret sins. That's why supposedly good people, religious people, are not really good at all. And that was Paul's situation, and he didn't even know it, at least not until that day, the the surprise audit, not until God intervened. And then finally Paul saw himself differently. Paul saw himself now the way God saw him, and he was devastated, standing speechless before this holy God that we sung about. I understand what that was like. In one sense, it's my own testimony. Raised in a Christian home, my father a pastor, a good kid, even as a teenager, the other people in my high school thought I was in the good category. As time advanced, I was a youth director in my father's church one summer. I was in a Christian band that traveled around. I wrote Christian songs, wrote the Christian vows to our wedding. And five or six years into our marriage, the heavenly accountant showed up and did an audit. And I was devastated. Saw myself the way God saw me. And he was so gracious to do that and bring me to repentance Well, go back to the balance sheet from the heavenly perspective here. It's as if now Paul, just to keep this metaphor going, this analogy, Paul takes the balance sheet, but now with a pencil and eraser, he begins to erase everything that was in that asset column, and he re-enters everything. He moves them all over into the liability column. Everything he had counted as assets He now says he counted as loss. 
So let's look at the assets and liabilities in reverse. First, liabilities this time. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That term loss is also in verse 8. It's a commercial term. It, it, you know, in, in the world of business, it's the idea of not making a profit or some goods being damaged and you, you lose money on that, whatever. Loss, we get that. So in using this term, Paul is saying that in a moment, on that day, something happened to cause him to see himself as he really was, a deluded, self-righteous, hopeless sinner with no actual spiritual profit, profit at all that would help him. On the road to Damascus, the risen Christ opened Paul's spiritual eyes. And he understood he was actually a great sinner. And that he was hopeless, but he also understood his only hope was in this one that he hated so much up until that moment. His only hope was for the Lord to forgive him and to save him. So he acknowledged that his achievements were all worthless. In fact, not only did they not help, they actually hurt him. And it's not because everything was bad in and of itself. It's not true. But when the privileges began to be regarded as what will cause God to accept someone, when they're regarded as a ticket to heaven, they are changed into their opposites. Trusting in them actually propels a person farther and farther away from God. So what a sudden Reversal. What a dramatic reversal of all values in Paul's life. This was a total reorientation all because of Christ. And you need to know something about that word loss he uses. It doesn't come out in the English, so let me tell you something about it. He put it in the singular form. But the word gain, he put in a plural form. And the reason he did that is because he was not thinking of all those Now, items that are in the liability column, he was not thinking of them itemized one by one anymore. He just put them all in there as a single entry, wrapped them all up, and just counted them as one big, giant, singular liability. Just one big zero, actually one big big colossal minus is what they were. What about the assets? What's in the asset column now? on Paul's balance sheet, the very cause that he hated so much, the very one that he hated, the the cause that he tried to wipe out with every means at his disposal. Now he did that with all the zeal of his heart. Now with all the zeal of his heart, that one thing, Christ, had become very dear to him. On the asset side, only one entry, trust in and love for Christ. He says in verse 7, look at it at the end, for the sake of Christ, which is what he confirms in verse 8. I didn't read it, but let's add that one in to our discussion today. We'll end with that one instead. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. In other words, after meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus, he didn't just start considering all those things he had listed as assets, those seven assets. Now he's even thinking beyond those items and considering all things that could stand in the way of trusting Christ, anything that could be in the way of fully 
accepting Christ and the righteousness of Christ. All things that you could possibly put fleshly confidence in. He could have listed other things, like his Roman citizenship. He didn't even mention that, but he had it. Material possessions. He was likely wealthy. Didn't mention that one, but he could have. The point is, I count all things, he says, to be lost. Anything can stand in the way of personal knowledge of Christ. So yes, for people today, it can be good deeds. It can be religious activity. It can be baptism. It can be church attendance. It can be personal morality. It can be pursuit of justice. It can be philanthropy. It can be patriotism. It can be being a good citizen. It can be being a good father or mother, and so on and so on. Another note about the grammar in verse 8. He says the verb count again in verse 8. He used it in verse 7, but the tenses are different. He changed the tense. In verse 7, it's in the perfect tense, which means a point came in his life that he settled this, counting all those things as loss. That was his settled decision, and the results of that then would be something that would continue then the rest of his life. But when he got to verse 8, he wanted to emphasize it even more, and he changed it to the present tense. He wanted to make it very clear that what he had counted loss at the moment of, com- of conversion, which, by the way, happened about 30 years before he wrote this, he was still counting it daily to be lost. He still understood it. And one more thing about verse 8. He uses a very strong term to describe all those things he trusted in. Look at it. He counts them, he says, as rubbish. It's the Greek term skubalon, and it means things like garbage. Refuse. The worst of, as one author put it, the worst of street sweepings and disgraceful muck. You really can't downplay the coarseness of the term. It means basically excrement. A very vulgar term. And he chose it to stress the force and the totality of the renunciation that took place in his life and this reorientation. What a change in Paul. Everything, even the best things, he says, are at best disgraceful muck compared compared to having and knowing and following Christ. And the kind of knowledge that he means here, knowledge of Christ, it it refers to something more than intellectual assent of the facts. It means the knowledge that includes enjoying personal communion with him and love for him. So gaining Christ, as he says it at the end of verse 8, that that was now the supreme goal of his life, to to know Christ more fully. That was his deepest desire. Christ became the very center of his life. And that is still true today. Christ is the decisive difference in someone's life. He's the decisive difference in a true believer's life. It is still the knowledge of Christ that has what Paul says here, surpassing value. This is what compensates for the loss of everything else. I'll end with a final verse by Paul, Galatians 6.14. He writes in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I should boast... Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and boast means to trust in, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. You can put anything else there. None of it matters. What matters is being a new creation, he says.
So with all that said about his spiritual balance sheet, I think it's a good time then for us to to have the summary thought about religion. A very important summary thought about religion. Here it is. There are only two kinds of religions in the world. Only two. Only two belief systems in the world. There is biblical Christianity, which is the gospel message and trusting in Christ alone. And there's everything else. Okay, Everything. You see, all the world religions, besides Christianity, true Christianity, can be boiled down to the same core belief. Man, here's the core belief, man is able to do something, he's able to do enough good to get God's acceptance, God's favor. So I've simplified things for you. You can still study religions if you want to know more detail, but I've kind of simplified it for you. I've boiled hours and hours and hours of what it would take to learn every nuance of of a religious system. I've just boiled it down for you to what it's all about. If its message is not the gospel, the good news of Christ, that he and he alone saves people not based upon their goodness, but based upon his own perfect life that he lived and upon his own merciful and gracious atoning work on the cross to pay for sin. If it's not that, it's a system of works in some form. And every system of works at the end of the day glorifies man in some way while the gospel of God's grace glorifies God. Pretty simple, but to make a mistake on this subject, the way to be saved from sins and go to heaven when you die, that, as simple as that description is, the mistake to make on it is the most serious mistake there is. Christ himself said in Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man, a person, if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his life, his his soul? And yet around us, people in their blindness, all unredeemed sinners are rushing headlong into some system of works, some system of seeking personal improvement and goodness under the delusion that they can earn a right relationship with God. But it's not surprising because that's just the natural bent that we're born with to do that, this propensity toward what is really an inadequate self-evaluation. We, we don't evaluate ourselves the right way, and as a result, we minimize sin and we even trivialize sin while maximizing and overestimating our ability and our goodness, and that's just the evidence of pride. But we can't forget what Jeremiah 17, 9 says about man. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. The only hope that solves that problem is the reality that God, gracious, merciful God, accepts the life and death of His eternal Son as a substitute in our place. It's Jesus alone who cleanses a sinner, the one who trusts in Him. It's Jesus who's the one who gives someone a new heart and sets that person on the path of, that's right to follow him. 
So that's not some sort of shallow hope that he provides. It's not a placebo hope. It's real hope. He takes lives. He takes lives, even the ones that are at rock bottom. So whether you're on the scale at rock bottom or or self-righteous at the other end, he takes people and makes them into something that's actually glorifying to him. And what I'm saying is not just for Jews who were holding on to religious practices and holding on to their heritage or their ceremonial religious rites. It's for everyone. Even the best of people fall short. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it could be anyone. Anyone could be counting on their upbringing. Anyone could be counting on being American or church activity or Christian schooling or baptism, communion, legalistic rules and regulations about morality and behavior and money or looks or talent or education, physical strength. I mean, honestly, the list of what people can put their trust in is practically endless. But the sad truth is that any one of those can become damning for somebody when it's viewed as the basis upon which to build their hope for eternity. So the realization that came to Paul is the same realization that must come to everyone. We're all in the same position, all in need of the same experience of God's salvation, and that's what true Christianity it is. It is. Conversion is that. It's a complete change or outlook of values, thinking, willing, feeling, everything. To say it opposite of that, Christianity is not an add-on to our life, just to make sure we've got that mixed in as well. It's never something that's added on to that which we previously had. No, it's Christ central or nothing. If you are trusting in Christ then in some way, this testimony by Paul does represent your your life in some way. And you're thrilled to read things like this because it's discussing fundamental Christian truths that you rejoice in, and it makes you more grateful even because of what Christ has done for you. And we know that once we're saved, we still sin, so we continue to daily trust in the Lord, trusting in His loving care for us and His, His forgiveness of us. Because we we see him as our great high priest who continues to forgive and to give grace and mercy in our times of need. But if you are trusting in something else, then the message is it's time for you to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this simple but potent look at what the essence of the gospel is and what conversion is and what it means to be a true believer. So, Lord, we we certainly don't claim perfection at all. Even as followers of Christ, we know that we sin much, but we know where our trust is. We know where we go to confess and to turn and to seek help and grace and mercy. Thank you for being a saving God. May your true sheep here today rejoice in this once again and be grateful and seek to serve the Lord out of this gratitude and love for Him. I pray for anyone who's never come to that place of really giving up trusting in anything else but surrendering in that sense, trusting in Christ alone, loving and serving Him. I pray you would open their hearts to that faith today. In our Savior's name, amen.